Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. It's our legal roundtable, and we have so much to discuss. That includes huge punitive damages against Bayer Monsanto and new charges against a Catholic priest for a 20-year-old allegation. But before we dive into this bounty of judicial matters, I want to introduce today's all-star panel. And with us again today is our founding member, Bill Freivogel. Bill is a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and he's also a lawyer. So, Bill, welcome back to the show. Hi. And we're joined today by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor, and she's currently in private practice at Gorofsky Law. So, Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And finally, this month, we're joined by Susan McGraw. She's a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law and the director of its legal clinic. So, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Now, we've previously talked on the show about a class action lawsuit that was filed related to the Public Defender's Office. It was filed by the ACLU and the MacArthur Justice Center back in 2017. And they had sued the state, the governor, and the Public Defender's Office. They argued that the state Public Defender <coughs> system was so overtaxed as to be unconstitutional. Now, there have been a lot of twists and turns in this litigation, but the Attorney General's Office successfully got the governor off the case. That left the ACLU and its clients negotiating with the Public Defender's Office. They arrived at a settlement in May of 2019, and just in this last month, the judge has re rejected this proposed settlement. So, Nicole Gorofsky, I'm wondering, what's going on here? Can the judge just throw this out when these two parties have come to what they thought was a deal? Yes. So the judge has the right to review the settlement and make sure that it's an appropriate settlement. And it was a it was actually a consent judgment. So the judge has the right to review the consent judgment. And in this case, um, this was a case with um, a number of individual, I think it was four, a number of individual defendants um, who were people who um, applied for and qualified for the public defender and um, had to wait a significant time or and or felt that the services were uh, not complete. And um, they asked to be certified as a class, in, in other words, to have a class action lawsuit. So they it, would stand in for basically everyone stuck in this system of, of needing a public defender? Correct. And then, you know, people could call in and ask to be a part of that class as they wanted, and that would have far-reaching consequences for Missouri. Uh, but the judge actually denied class certification in this mm. case. So when it went to um, mediation and came out with this consent judgment, the only people involved in the case were these four plaintiffs and then uh, the Missouri Public Defender's Office and some individuals related to the Missouri Public Defender's Office. So the consent judgment, though, in the end had um, – just some of the most important terms. I think there were four terms that were really particularly important, which were um, that the public defenders have to argue for pretrial release in every single case or at least an amount that they knew that their client was able to pay. Hmm. They had to answer all client correspondence within 10 days and um, answer all phone calls within two days. They had to monitor compliance um, no, they had to give the ACLU the ability to monitor their compliance with the agreement, and they had to share all their data with the ACLU. And then I think the one that got the most publicity was that they had a caseload standard, which was set to um, no more than 173.3 hours of work per month. And then 
you ask what do they do once they hit that number, they were supposed to stop accepting cases under this agreement and go to the court and tell the court they must act on any remaining cases. Well, the court had a problem with this, number one, because they didn't get certified as a class action, and all of these remedies were for a class, not for these four particular people. The other reason the court had a problem with this is essentially the judge said, we are required under law to assign cases to the public defender's office, not the other way around. Hmm. And the court system was not a party to this lawsuit. We didn't get sued. I mean... I think everyone feels for the public defender system. I think without a doubt there's a problem, but the problem is a funding problem. And I think this was the right decision legally by the judge. It's just it needs a different fix, which is probably a budgetary fix. Now, Sue, I know you're a former public defender. Do you think that this um, uh, settlement, I keep using that term, I'm sorry, you said it was, it's a consent, consent a consent judgment. Do you think this would have been a, a good fix here? Or? I think it would have been a good start. Um, you know, what happened was that the MacArthur Foundation and the ACLU uh, or the MacArthur Justice Center turned around and filed another lawsuit that that's attempting to tackle the same problems, um, but through a different strategy. And, and you're saying this just happened that they filed this, this just happened. second lawsuit at this trying to tackle the same problem. Right. Yesterday, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and so, is how is this different than this one that didn't quite succeed? Well, it's tackling specifically the idea of having a wait list. Uh, for people who cannot access a public defender. So in counties where the courts have found the public defender is overburdened, the public defender's been allowed to, out of necessity, create a wait list for people who need a public defender. But what happens is while you're on the wait list, if you're a person charged with a crime, you have no access to a lawyer. Hmm. Um, And some of those people have been incarcerated over two years. And no chance to, to talk to a lawyer during this time. Not a publicly funded lawyer, no. I mean, that does seem nakedly unconstitutional. Bill? I mean, yeah. is that? <laughs> I, I, I would agree. I mean, you know, the basis of all of this is that there's a federal constitutional right to have a lawyer if you're faced, uh, you know, a criminal case with, with jail time. And even if you can't pay for it, they're supposed it, to give you one. Even if you can't pay for it, that, uh, that, that's a, a federal constitutional requirement. There's also, I think, I believe a Missouri constitutional requirement to that effect. Um, and as Susan said, there uh, are three people who have been in uh, in jail for three, uh, two years, waiting a waiting trial without having had a, a lawyer assigned to them. Um, I think another 44 who have been on you know, on the wait list and not getting representation for a year or more. And the average of those people on the wait list is 114 days. So you know these are people who are innocent before the law. They're just, uh, and they and they don't have the. Uh, they don't have the representation. So, Sue, how is this new lawsuit going to, to try to take this on and get these people some relief? Well, um, the allegations are, again, that people are not receiving constitutionally mandated services. This wait list is a stopgap measure that was instituted in order to avoid saying, no, we won't represent people at all because we have too many. And I, I think you know, one of the issues is that 
people are getting representation. If you force the public defenders to take everybody who needs their services, everybody's getting about 30% of what they're due. Mm -hmm. And so the public defenders really have made a decision to try to give the most people 100% and then have this wait list. But I am in complete agreement that it's a funding issue. The public defender is chronically underfunded. They've been underfunded since I was a public defender 20-something years ago. And really, it's up to the legislature to fix this. And to fix this, you know, for once and for all. And we're talking about people who are disenfranchised. There's really no motivation for anybody to do anything for them at this point. Nicole? So one of the other interesting issues about this being a funding issue and a constitutional issue, as Bill said, you know, you think about funding issues and constitutional issues and you think who's responsible for that. And of course, you come back and you think the state. So the state was a party in this original lawsuit that we're talking about that was in the federal court. And uh, they moved to um, dismiss the counts against them saying that they had sovereign immunity. And so sovereign immunity is this really old law that dates back to the times when we were uh, English colonies that says that uh, you can't sue the king. Hmm. And so believe it or not, we still have certain sovereign immunity um, issues in Missouri. And the judge, um, for creative reasons, said, no, we're not letting you out, um, state of Missouri. And then they took it to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals overruled her. So I think, you know, one of the things to think about in this case is how does sovereign immunity affect these things, and is it something that we still really need in this state? I mean, I think the the bad guys are very clearly the Missouri legislature, which has underfunded the public defenders for decades. I I mean, report after report comes out of national groups that look at this uh, and national um, uh, journalism organizations. And Missouri's always, you know, 46, 47, 48 in funding. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a constitutional obligation. The Missouri legislature isn't – isn't coming anywhere near stepping up to it. Now, Nicole had mentioned earlier that this previous suit, they couldn't get certified as a class, and that maybe was was part of their problem. Um, Do you think with this new suit, they might have a better shot at getting class action status? So I don't know that they're going to have a better shot, but I am speculating speculating that that could be the intention of filing the second suit is because, of course, the remedy that um, they're looking for is statewide. Um, Taking a case for every single defendant is cumbersome and it's just too difficult. So I speculate, and I don't have any inside information on this, but obviously I'm speculating that the goal is to be certified as a class. And the remedy that they're asking for is to declare the Missouri the law that permits the creation of this uh, waiting list to be unconstitutional because it violates the due process rights of of the people who don't get lawyers. And they're saying, uh, so that, that, that law that permits the creation of the waiting list should be declared unconstitutional. And then either the state has to get, provide a lawyer uh, for the people on the wait, who had been on the waiting list or dismiss the charges. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I have a feeling this isn't the last time we're going to talk about <laughs> <No>. this. <laughs> not this issue and, and not this litigation. <laughs> if you're listening to our legal panel discuss this issue, if you have a question or comment about this or anything we talk about later in the hour, you can give us a call. We're at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And yes, we are talking today to our legal roundtable. That's Bill Fry. 
Vogel, a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Nicole Gorofsky, a lawyer at Gorofsky Law, and Susan McGraw, a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law. We need to take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about um, a sexual abuse case involving a priest. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Sue McGraw of the St. Louis University School of Law, and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. And a case that happened in this last month, a 76-year-old former priest, Frederick Lutz, was arrested this month on charges of forcible sodomy, statutory sodomy, and sexual abuse. And these are for acts that allegedly occurred in the year 2000 in Stoddard County in southeast Missouri, and they involved a 17-year-old boy. Now, the Diocese of Springfield, Cape Girardeau, said that they alerted law enforcement in 2002, which they say is right after they learned about these allegations. Um, And now five years after Lutz retired, more recently, the diocese says it learned of a second possible victim that goes back to 1972, and that's when they put him on a public list. So these charges are now coming from the Missouri Attorney General. Uh, Nicole Gorofsky, I'm wondering, should we be mad that this guy is only being charged now? (laughs) Okay, so full disclosure, uh, I've done priest abuse cases for almost 10 years now representing victims against... uh, abusive priests and the archdiocese um, or various dioceses around the state. So, uh, yes, we should be mad, <laughs> right? Full disclosure. In your opinion. <laughs> right. Of course we should be mad. No, but I mean, in general, people should be upset about this, of course. This is, this is um, you know, um, first of all, I think I want to explain that um, what happened to make this come out was uh, the Missouri Attorney General um, did an investigation of um, priest abuse, uh, clergy abuse in Missouri, uh, specifically within the Catholic Church, and um, completed it last year and came up with a list of, I believe, 180 or so um, priests that um, were abusive in Missouri, and then had a smaller list of 12 that were still within the criminal statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. And so the Missouri Attorney General's office agreed to refer uh, all of those 12, if if feasible, for criminal prosecution to the relevant counties. Um, A few things to say about the Attorney General's investigation were that um, they didn't use grand jury power or any kind of um, investigative power. They left it to the archdiocese to, and. The archdiocese, specifically the archdiocese in St. Louis, started by saying, "We'll open our records. You can come look." Um, we don't know how truthful that was, or how much access they actually gave in reality. Um, and then the other diocese in Missouri, which is the diocese of Kansas City, Jefferson City, and then there's Springfield, Cape Girardeau. Uh, their bishops then followed suit and said, you can come look at ours. So there's no like investigative subpoenas. There's no, um, it's kind of the opposite of an investigation. It's um, sort of, you know, 
we welcome you to come in and look at what we show you as opposed to we're going to come in and, you know, take what you have. So um, just to begin with that. And then these 12 charges um, came out of that investigation. So this particular one is out of the Diocese of Springfield, Cape Girardeau, and um, involves a 17-year-old uh, male who thankfully is not being named. Um so clearly they had this in their records for some time, and it was only revealed because the attorney general's office came in and found it. Um, they do say that they contacted law enforcement when they found this out in 2002. The prosecute, And they say it was sent for prosecution and it was declined. This is what the archdiocese say. Um, in public um, news reports, the prosecutor's office has responded by saying that's news to us. Hmm. We have no record of that. Um, so we don't know who's right there. Um, but yes, I mean, this is part of the pattern that has been seen across the country of covering up, um, pre-sexual abuse and, um, not sending people for prosecution. I guess I'm wondering, looking at this, I mean, this more recent allegation goes all the way back to the year 2000. I'm surprised there's not a, a statute of limitations issue here. Um, Sue, any thoughts on that as a, a former public defender? Yeah, they um, there are measures put into place when the statute of limitations is considered that protect child victims because child victims are unlikely to report. There are, in some cases, extended both criminal and civil statutes of limitations. Okay, so that might well be what's going on here is that this person was 17. So there's a longer statute. Um, Bill, I'm, I'm wondering, bigger picture, do you share some of Nicole's concerns that this investigation didn't go far enough? Uh, yes. Um, so, so, I mean, it is uh, the, the fact that this was all occurring around 2000, 2002. I mean, this was already during the period of time that the, 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 the abuse, sexual abuse by, uh, by Catholic priests had become a national um, scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so you know, the, this is so. The, so the initial uh, the 2002 information that was turned over to authorities and turned over to the diocese in this particular case that that was after you know spotlight and the Boston you know the Boston priests because that occurred right around 9/11 mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the and the Catholic Church. I mean, I can remember. Uh, as a, an editorial writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, sitting there and the uh, Catholic Archdiocese coming in, telling us about all the great things they were doing to invest, really take this seriously now. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're really taking this seriously now. Well, they didn't. This was right in that time. This was right in that. This is right when this was going on. And, um, and I share some of Nicole's uh, concerns also about the uh, Josh Hawley investigation. Um, in that, I mean, the, the, what triggered the Missouri investigation and other states investigating was Pennsylvania finding all sorts of abusive priests, and they used the grand jury and you know the power of subpoenas and all. And, all. and uh, so, for Josh Hawley to say, "Oh, we're, we're going to play nice and we're not going to do that," uh, I don't think was the best way in which to uh, pursue that. But we promoted him to the U.S. Senate anyway. <laughs> and not that Bill has any opinions on that. Um, that's Bill Freivogel. 
a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois Uni- University, Carbondale. We're also talking to Nicole Gorofsky, a lawyer at Gorofsky Law, and Sue McGraw, a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law. Now, I think the the biggest legal news that came out of the month that came out this month happened in Cape Girardeau, and that's where Monsanto and another German-owned chemical company called BASF were smacked with a two hundred and sixty-five million dollar legal verdict. Um, this came out of a pair of peach farmers who sued over damage that they claimed they suffered from neighboring farmers' use of the weed killer dicamba. The jury awarded them $15 million in damages and $250 million in punitive damages. Uh, Susan McGraw, were you surprised by the size of this verdict? You know, I was. I was. Um, Suits like this have been occurring over the past decade where farmers are alleging that choices made in herbicide and seeds um, have had really dire consequences for their farms. Um, It was also a suit in federal court. Federal courts aren't necessarily known for producing big plaintiff's jury verdicts. And it was in Cape Girardeau. Um, this is a conservative. The, the Limbaugh name is huge in Cape Girardeau. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I was surprised. And I was surprised at the amount of punitive damages. I mean, this was a jury that was very angry at the way that this farmer had been treated. And it's interesting. Um, uh, Monsanto's response to this was that any farmers who were using this dicamba were using this illegally, contrary to the instructions that were laid out in the packages that, that people bought at the store, and sort of suggesting that if there's any problem here, they should have sued the neighbors, not the company. Bill Freivogel, the <laughs> jury, clearly didn't buy that. No, no, they, they didn't buy that. I, I, have a, um, I have to disclose a conflict of interest. I'm the head of the Midwest Sunder Investigative Reporting, which has done a lot of uh, reporting on dicamba and covered the trial down in Cape Girardeau. Um, uh, but no, they didn't believe that. What they did believe was the, the, the evidence that Monsanto knew there was a like, great likelihood of uh, uh, Monsanto and I guess BASF uh, knew there was a great likelihood that the dicamba would blow to other farms, and they um, they, they really didn't. Uh, you know, they, they they misstated the likelihood of that happening. You know, Monsanto also claimed that well, this was just like some peach rot, uh, some rot that had gotten to the peach trees. It that was unrelated what, wasn't to this. Related to dicamba at all? And I don't think that that was they bought that. Either. I mean, this sort of sets the stage, I think, for lots more suits against Monsanto slash Bear um, for payouts on dicamba. And I want to get to how the legislature might be poised to respond to a flood of more lawsuits here in a second. But I did have one other question. It's somebody who's been watching this closely. The legal part of this that I found most confusing is that BASF and Monsanto kind of share this verdict and they have to hash out who pays what? How does that even work, Bill? I I guess this is a, a, I mean, maybe the legal phrase for this is joint and several liability for, for this uh, so uh, yeah they will have to work work out how how it's uh, paid uh, between them because they both they both have responsibility for it um, isn't it isn't it more typical that a jury would say so and so's fifty percent at fault so and so's fifty or is am I just in the dark from watching too many movies Nicole <laughs> well, I think there might be an issue um, because they are essentially one and the same now, because one bought the other. No, that's separate. So um, Monsanto, Bayer now owns Monsanto, but right. there's another German chemical company. Okay. This is where it gets weird. This is BASF. And so BASF and Monsanto Bayer are being considered one entity for the purpose of this verdict, right. okay. which is where I get 
I I'm apologize. Confused. Yep. Oh. I, I mean, BASF, if I understand this correctly, BASF, BASF is the company that actually originally developed dicamba. Mm. They, they may have called it something different, but they originally developed the chemical. And so their responsibility you know, lies from the original development, and then they had a business relationship with Monsanto, which then you know produced these dicamba-resistant seeds that they were uh, trying to sell. So they both bear responsibility, uh, according to the jury, uh, for having uh, sort of covered up the fact that there was a, they had real concerns and sort of pre- knowledge of the fact that there was likely to be a lot of um, that the that the, uh, the dicamba would blow to neighboring um, cr- uh, farm fields and destroy crops there. Okay, so now their lawyers will have to yeah. sort it out or try to get it struck down on appeal, <laughs> <laughs> which they're going to. They have. They're definitely, they have sure they're going to try. Yeah. I think they have a good appeal. Okay, Um, so that leads me to um, sort of a digression on the political front, which is that the Missouri legislature is trying to take a whack at striking down punitive damages at this level. The Senate actually just passed a bill um, that would make some big changes to how, I shouldn't say big changes, it will make some changes to how punitive verdicts are handled. And Nicole, I'm wondering, what do you see in in this law if it passes the House as well? Would this mean big changes or are these a series of small changes? So... It's a very complicated issue, actually, with a lot of legal nuance. But um, it's it certainly changes. And I think the way that it started out was a Republican legislator legislature looking for some really huge changes. And then um, some Democrats in the legislature filibustered. In fact, I think they filibustered for an entire night. They did. And during that time, I think there was negotiation going on in, you know, behind closed doors. And they came out with a less big change to um, punitive damages in Missouri, if that makes any sense. So um, basically, what's interesting is that um, you, you know, you could always get punitive damages in Missouri, um, but what, and you could always, so the standard for proving punitive damages is clear and convincing evidence. That has always been the case, or at least, you know, for my career. Um, but what what it used to be is it was clear and convincing evidence of willful and wanton behavior. I mean, we put that, that information in pleadings. Um, they changed that willful and wanton hmm. language that has been around for 30 years which has tons of case law surrounding it, interpreting what willful and wanton means, to new language. It, so it's they changed some magic words to new magic words. And now no one was, knows what the new magic words are going to mean until we have case law interpret those new magic words. Oh, great. This sounds like a complete mess. That's correct. So, so um, you know, one of my thoughts was, is this, is this definitively worse Mm, that remains to be seen. Okay. Right? And to that part of this. There are some other changes um, in the legislation that are, um, and when I say definitively worse, I am admitting that I am a trial lawyer. <laughs> so This would be me, worse for your clients. It would be worse for Perhaps my clients. better for the business community, Correct. which might be the intention <laughs> Correct. here. So I have to admit my bias there. Um, there are some other changes um, to the law that Um, will clearly change things for um, plaintiffs in Missouri. One is that um, 
in Missouri, you can file an initial pleading with your pleading for punitive damages right in there when you file your lawsuit from the beginning. Over in Illinois, you can't do that. Hmm. You have to um, you have to petition the court, and the judge has to allow you to add punitive da- damages as the case goes on. So this would follow that model. We adopt. Yeah, this legislation adopts that model. Um, the other thing is. Um, Let's say you had a lawsuit on the same topic against the same defendant in a federal court or in a different state, and they already paid punitive damages. Um, then when you get it in Missouri and you get punitive damages, the defendant can ask for credit for the punitive damages that they've already paid in that federal lawsuit or in that other state. So um, Interesting. That, yes, that's an interesting change. Um, it also changed the punitive damages language for medical malpractice to different magic words. So we'll have to see how that um, changes. And then um, different from other punitive damages statutes tor- or what we call tort reform st- statutes in the past um, that have been retroactive, this one is not retroactive. So um, those are sort of the major issues uh, regarding hmm. punitive damages in this legis- legislation. I will say I've never heard of Illinois as being a model of, of clamping down on things. <laughs> Things like punitive damages. Is right. this, would these even make a difference if we if we put these in? Sue, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's part of an effort we've seen by Republican legislators to kind of close the doors to the courthouses a little bit more tightly. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some extraordinarily large verdicts out of both Eastern, uh, you know, Illinois and out of St. Louis. And I think there's really been an effort to lobby and push for legislation that's going to limit the ability of people to recover punitive damages in circumstances where they've been allowed before. Um, you know, we should remember this legislation came on the heels of the defeat of other Republican introduced legislation regarding uh, asbestos. Um, And that legislation was also intended to close the doors of the courthouse more tightly against people who had very legitimate asbestos-related claims. Um, And there was a lot of negotiation going on with that. um, And that legislation was defeated, and this legislation, of course, was waiting in the background in case that happened. You know, the Chamber of Commerce uh, groups have been real effective through the years in saying, you know, that there are these quote-unquote judicial hell holes like, uh, uh, like Illinois. I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm sure I know some of these punitive damage awards are, are uh, excessive. But, the, you know, for, you can't really take at face value um, the claims of these uh, very special interested groups like the Chamber of Commerce, uh, as who said, for for years, for um, I mean, Matt Blunt uh, was got got caps passed uh, on punitive. I think it was on punitive damages, and I think those those those, those caps were uh, struck down by the Missouri Supreme Court. So it's been a sort of back and forth seesaw battle. Uh, as as far as it wouldn't affect the Peach case that we were talking about before, because mm-hmm. that was in federal court, and a uh, state legislature can't uh, affect punitive damages in federal court. But as Nicole said, the, uh, if there was in a lawsuit on the same subject in state court, they could get credit, I guess, for yeah. 
they're two, 265 million. I think one thing that's interesting too is that the Republican legislature um, in Missouri tries to bring up some sort of tort reform bill pretty often. And this one regarding punitive damages, and then if they do try to talk about these judicial hell holes, um, it looks like um, I spoke to um, one of the people who was working on this issue for the Missouri Trial Lawyers Association, and he said he did research on punitive damage cases in Missouri. And um, so out of any amount of cases you hear that are awarded punitive damages in Missouri, there are only five appeal cases on this issue, hmm. or at least less than 10, he said, in the whole state that have made it to the appellate court, which means this is just not a problem. This is, is, not is the business community obsessing about the wrong thing? I mean, what's what's driving all the effort going into this if it's, if it's not the problem? It's politics. <laughs> yeah. I, and how do you find the business community? Are we talking about small business owners? Are we talking about large corporations, or are we talking about large insurance companies mm-hmm. that are making an effort to limit their liability by passing or assisting in the passage of bills that make it more difficult for their clients to get sued? So you think this is big insurance, not uh, Main Street USA? It certainly looks like it. <laughs> we do have a strong insurance lobby in Missouri as well. That could explain a lot. So we're talking to our legal roundtable. That's Nicole Gorofsky, a lawyer at Gorofsky Law, and Susan McGraw of the St. Louis University School of Law, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We're talking to our legal roundtable about a bunch of interesting cases this month, and that's Bill Freivogel, Nicole Gorofsky, and Susan McGraw. And I want to turn to them uh, with another case. Uh, This one has to do with the criminal justice system, and it also involves the Missouri legislature. It feels like that's been a, a leitmotif of today's show. There's a bill in the legislature right now that would change how juveniles are treated um, if they're accused of gun crimes. Now, right now, judges can hold a hearing to decide whether to transfer a juvenile case to adult court. And for certain crimes like murder, these hearings are mandatory. This new proposal would add two new gun crimes to this list of when there has to be a hearing to consider should this person be tried as an adult. Um, Susan McGraw, I'm wondering what you think about this. Right. So the process of finding that a juvenile should be treated in the adult criminal justice system, which carries with it a penalty of incarceration in an adult jail, in an adult prison with other adults, um, is dependent upon the decision of the juvenile court judge. So we have this process of certification. Most of the time, the judge can make a decision, do I want to have a certification process or not? But under some circumstances, with the very worst of crimes, murder, rape, robbery, the court has to have this hearing. They have to consider transferring the child into the adult system and potentially an adult prison. So this new legislation that's being offered expands those times when the judge must have a hearing to consider whether someone should be transferred to adult prison. And it's in those situations where there's a gun involved, unlawful use of a weapon. Now, it can be something as serious as someone having Uh, shot into a home or shot into a house, or it can be something like a juvenile carrying a gun while they have a controlled substance on their person, Mm. or bringing a gun on um, a bus stop, 
uh, excuse me, on a school bus. And it's really an effort to encourage judges to place more um, juveniles into the adult penal system. Now, based what you know on these juvenile judges, the people in that are adjudicating these cases, do you think this will work if it's passed, that they will end up saying, oh, yeah, now that we've had this hearing, let's just try this kid as an adult? Well, you know, there's a big discrepancy between juvenile court judges in St. Louis and a juvenile court judge somewhere in outstate Missouri. Um, and who would be more encouraged to do it. I think any time that there's pressure from the legislature to move more children into the adult system, that's problematic. Um, It shouldn't necessarily color how a judge sees a case. Mm -hmm. Um, They should still use the same process. But it does send a message to the judges that we think there needs to be more harsh punishment for children in these situations. You mentioned the juvenile court justices in St. Louis are different than elsewhere. Um, What are they like in the rest of the state? Well, you know, I can't, I can only speak to my experience with adult court judges, but they're more conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, And crime is, uh, especially some gun crimes can be considered uh, and punished more harshly in smaller counties where there's not as much. I mean, I think we would all agree in St. Louis, there's a lot of gun crime and there's certainly a lot of violent crime. And uh, I think there is to a certain degree a numbing effect when you see those cases every day. Sue is saying that this is problematic to her, but at the same time, I know a lot of city residents are concerned. There's a lot of kids running around with guns. Um, Bill, should we be taking these cases more seriously? Well, I mean, I I think that putting more kids in the adult prisons is not the solution to the gun problem. I I think a a lot of our Republican legislators think it is. And, uh, you know, maybe they should be also considering uh, some legislation regarding you know, uh, the possession of guns. Uh, But, uh, you know, I felt one of the things that both liberals and conservatives had agreed upon in recent years was was that uh, too much of the, there were too many people incarcerated. Uh, And here we have, you know, so this move to get put more juveniles in in adult prisons uh, for having guns. And meanwhile, you've got the U.S. attorney uh, handling way more gun cases uh, with the result being much longer federal sentences. Uh, so you have a move towards like greater incarceration. So did we not really learn the lesson? Nicole, you're a former prosecutor. Um, how do you fall on this issue? Yeah, I mean, as much as I'd love to throw dissent into this conversation, <laughs> I, I pretty much <laughs> agree with everyone. I, I, you know, I mean, when you're talking about, and I think the age was 12 and up, I mean, think about a 12-year-old. And um, they were including um, gun offenses that would be, um, I mean, I was thinking, I was trying to think of like, what's a small gun offense? I know that's that's a horrible thing to say, right? It's it's seems horrible. But like, even a kid who would brandish a firearm mm-hmm. would be included in this. And so, and brandishing could be as something like a 13-year-old kid whose parent gives them a gun and then he waves it. Um, so, it, it seems a little too much 
for me even as an ex-prosecutor. We'll have to keep an eye on where that one goes. Um, Locally, the St. Louis County Council has passed some new gun restrictions, and it voted to bar those found guilty of domestic violence or with an order of protection against them for domestic violence from carrying concealed guns. Now, Councilman Tim Fitch made an interesting point here. He did vote against this. Apparently, all the men on the county council (laughs) voted against it. Just noting that. that. Yes, I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Um, But he, he noted that getting found guilty of this would be like getting a ticket because the county council can only approve ordinances, not laws. Um, Sue, does he have a point on that? Well, I think he also inferred that this would be a substitute. You know, it is illegal in federal uh, court, in the federal jurisdiction, to have a gun if you have a misdemeanor domestic violence conviction. So the feds could already be picking these cases up? Right, but they're not. And that's the point that the women on the county council were trying to make. These laws aren't being enforced against domestic violence uh, abusers for whatever reason. And so they'd like to themselves have the power to at least try to take some of the guns out of the hands of people who abuse women. So you feel like maybe this is something that could have an impact? Any impact is better than no impact in this situation. Now, the Post-Dispatch reported that Kansas City has apparently done the same thing. And with the state legislature not wanting to put in more gun restrictions, do you think cities can can make a dent in the gun violence problem by going it on their own, Bill? Well, I guess they can try, but you know, the the state the state can uh, you know preempt any kind of local legislation. Uh, so there's only so far that that this that state that that city cities can go. I want to mention another thing involving Kansas City, and that is that um, they're dealing with past marijuana convictions in this age of, of medical marijuana. And it sounds like they're basically allowing people to apply for pardons there. Now, we reached out to the mayor's office in St. Louis to ask if they might consider something similar here. And her spokesman said the charter doesn't give the mayor the power to pardon. Um, is there any sense that this is something that, that St. Louis could do or should do and, and who could do it? Anyone on our panel have any thoughts on that? Well, what Kansas City, I have definite thoughts on that. What what Kansas City's done is streamline the process for requesting that there be a pardon. And you know, if you if you think about what our newly elected prosecutors have talked about is that enforcement of marijuana laws isn't a priority for them. And you know, the, the only way really to get rid of these convictions is an expungement. Um, a lot of people have state marijuana convictions that's going to require an expungement. So if people really, you know, the mayor really wanted to do something, it would be helping to set up a quick and easy system for people seeking expungement hmm. um, of their state charges. And that's something that could be pulled together with the judges around here and the prosecutors, and that would be very effective. So the judges and the prosecutors, if someone got them together, they could do something similar here. Yeah, and people are trying. Oh, I feel like we just got a little scoop here. <laughs> yeah. And Nicole, I see you nodding. It sounds like you think Sue's barking up the right tree here. This would be the, the way that this would have to go. Well, yeah, I mean, expungement, uh, people um, hire attorneys to seek expungements in court all the time. And um, the difference between a pardon and an expungement is the pardon. If you get a pardon, um, it, you know, you get, um, it's like you 
how do I explain this? It's like you get relieved from the effects of your conviction, but the conviction does not come off your record. Mm -hmm. If you get an expungement, the conviction comes off your record, which, of course, for most people would be preferred. So um, people with it, it, it does end up pe being people with means hire attorneys because the public defenders don't do this and don't have the time. They're to busy do this, enough, as we yes. talked about. <laughs> yeah. So people hire attorneys and uh, go into court and seek expungements all the time, and and they often get them. So yes, you, um, Sue is right that there are opportunities for judges and court system to do this. We're talking to our legal roundtable. That's Nicole Gorofsky and Bill Freivogel and Susan McGraw. One other case I wanted to make sure we got to this month is one involving the radio. The FCC finally took action on radio stations allegedly owned by Bob Romanek, the Grim Reaper of St. Louis Radio. Uh, he's a convicted felon accused of concealing his ownership in a host of radio stations in the Metro East. He's also the on-air personality on them, known for using terrible racial slurs pretty much nonstop. So uh, the judge in this FCC hearing terminated the hearings by declining to renew his license. She did that with prejudice. Um, Bill Freiwell, how did this take so long? I mean, this initial complaint <laughs> goes back to 2012. That was eight years ago. I don't know the answer for why why it took so long. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, part of the reason it took so long is that the, the – um, uh, he's been evading the the, the 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 hearing process here. You know, he first of all, the 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 ownership seems to have been set up. Uh, it, it was his money, uh, uh, but uh, he had a he had a company, Entertainment Media, and that uh, had, had uh, a lawyer uh, by the name of Dennis Watkins, and then uh, so the, who were the uh, the sort of official owners uh, since he couldn't as a felon, uh, you know be an owner. And uh, then the, the uh, company declared bankruptcy in the middle of these hearings, and then they undeclared bankruptcy, and then Watkins didn't appear in court. And I think this hearing judge finally got got fed up and said, you know, I'm dismiss, dismissing this without prejudice. I mean, he, he has the, the use, he, this, is, this, this fellow likes to use the N-word um, as, you know, sort of for, part of his First Amendment right. I mean, he could have a blog. Let him have a blog. He can, he can use the N-word all he wants on a blog. He got a free speech right to do that. It is interesting. <laughs> Those of us in the radio business, we try to be very careful not to say something that would violate the community standards. And, you know, in my case, that means I try really hard not to swear. It just seems crazy that somebody can do what seems like a clear violation of community standards for years <laughs> on end. Um, Sue McGraw, any thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, in my experience, people like that can be very litigious, mm -hmm. and it can be very intimidating. Who wants to put the bell on the cat? Um, <laughs> because who knows what's going to happen after you make a claim? And uh, obviously, the FCC was willing to take that risk, albeit after quite a prolonged period of time. They wanted to take the eight-year process, not the, the two-year <laughs> process. It's interesting. He does appear to still be on the airwaves, and we contacted the FCC to ask what was going on, and they declined comment. And so I find myself wondering, you think it could take another eight years to actually get him off the air? Probably so. <laughs> this is so classic. I mean, he, I guess he said on the air that he would be off the air forever. Wouldn't that be so sad? <laughs> <laughs> We're all just shedding tears here at St. Louis Public Radio. So in our final couple minutes today, um, one of our local attorneys is in the national news, and that is Jeff Jensen, who is our U.S. attorney um, here in the St. Louis area. 
Bill, why is he in the news? Oh, he's in the news because Attorney General Barr has put him in charge of taking a look at whether or not the uh, handling of the Michael Flynn uh, case was was proper. You'll remember that he was the uh, ill-fated national security advisor who on his fourth day on the job lied to the FBI. Um, what, he, what did he lie about? Uh, well, um, you, you may recall at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the um, Obama administration, President Obama imposed sanctions on Russia uh, because they had interfered with the 2016 election. And um, Flynn uh, called up uh, the Russian ambassador and said, "Hey, don't you know? Don't respond too strongly to this. You know, we we can take care of this after we're in we're in we're in the White House." Um, when asked about that by the FBI, he lied, uh, and uh, he also lied to the vice president, uh, which is what I think ended up costing his uh, job. You may recall the president asked uh, uh, Comey to. Uh, Take it easy on, on Flynn. So I, I think we all sort of feel sorry that Jensen has been put in this position of trying to find a deep state connection uh, to the Flynn case. To look over this prosecution. Yeah. He seems like a really respected guy. This seems like such a thankless job. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of this. So Bill Freibogel, a professor of journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, thank you for being here. Thank you. And last but not least, Susan McGraw of the St. Louis University School of Law, thank you for being here today. You're welcome, Sarah. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.